Hello and welcome to People of Tech with me, Charles Commons, the podcast where I speak to leading figures discussing the current climate and the future of technology in their industries. Along the way, we'll learn more about the people behind the job title and share their thoughts and opinions on their role in this week's episode. I love big thinkers that take on big challenges. Um, I think we need those people that, um, you know, I guess like Elon Musk and Tesla that stands up and goes, hey, I'm going to do this. I think Twitter is a really interesting phenomenon because, you know, with say things like the, the Green Revolution, Uh, in Iran, which of course wasn't a revolution, but it was a whole pile of young people protesting on Twitter. You know, you had a country where a huge internet divide, like only a small proportion of people on the internet, but because they're using something like Twitter that all the journalists use and all the politicians use, that has a disproportionate influence on news stories. Dr. Phoebe Fletcher is a board member and vice president of political science and international affairs for the Centre for Strategic Cyberspace and International Studies. She runs programmes and analyses how social media is leveraged into current affairs, public policy and mass media. To start our conversation, I asked Phoebe to talk me through her career and how she transitioned into the world of cybersecurity. So I guess I have always been really interested in how people form their opinions. And I come from a background in cultural studies, um, which is very much about grand theories on how the world works, how media changes society, and uh, how that makes us form our opinions. And uh, so when I was teaching, I used to teach digital studies, um, but one of my specialities was on how people change their ideas through popular culture um, and through media. So uh, when I encountered the Centre for Strategic Cyberspace and Security Science, um, I was actually doing a doctorate on possibly one of the weirdest non-tech topics, um, but it was one of the things that propelled me to become interested in digital culture. Um, So my doctorate is actually on the rise of torture porn after (laughs) 9-11, which sounds like pornography, but it's actually really violent films like Hostel and Saw. Hello, Amanda. You don't know me, but I know you. I want to play a game. What happened after 2003 was there was a 78% rise in domestic US box office in the period following the occupation of Iraq. Um, And it became so synonymous with the images of torture from Abu Ghraib that it got rebranded as torture porn in the United States and created this sort of massive national debate. Um, Now, this was one of the most significant and sudden changes in audience taste since 1967, uh, which is when independent cinema nearly collapsed the Hollywood studio system. Um, So I got really interested in the idea of how images kind of circulate and influence people. And um, of course, when you talk about 9-11, you're talking about a really singular, powerful image of the Twin Towers collapsing. Um, And you're also talking about the images that came out of Abu Ghraib. Um, So I looked at the ideas of a couple of theorists, um, Jean Baudrillard, Um, who he looked at how we were fascinated by images of capitalism destroying itself and why these images reverberated around the world and engaged us so heavily. 
um, and another French theorist called Paul Verlio, who argued that military and technology drove society. And he talked about how the field of perception was as important as the battlefield. Um, so this to me made perfect sense in the age of the internet. And of course, um, at the time, I was a political commentator in New Zealand as well. So um, I did that for 13 years on domestic politics and foreign affairs. Um, so I became really interested in the way that the internet was changing the optics of politics. Um, so I had been teaching digital cultures um, and at the time Occupy was really sort of beginning to flourish and so was the Arab Spring. And so I became so sort of obsessed with the Arab Spring that I began following around 2,000 commentators across the Middle East and I would jump up in the middle of the night to check on what was going on um, and was really interested um, in the kind of power of the image and the way that the internet was changing it. Um, so I guess when the internet first came about, people thought of it as being a democratizing force um, that would expose us to all of these other different perspectives. Yet one of the things that we saw in politics um, was it ended up elevating singular images and creating pockets of people that would talk within themselves. Um, so for me, um, I guess this is kind of technical, but um, in media studies, we had something called the CNN effect, uh, which referred to how the arrival of CNN streaming 24 hours changed the priorities of the American public. Um, so what happened was the additional time meant that CNN all of a sudden was providing saturation coverage of issues like the war in Somalia and the Ethiopian famine. And all of a sudden, this caused the American public to place pressure on their politicians when it wouldn't have been a priority before. Um, so the internet, to me, I guess, kind of created something similar to the CNN effect, but very, very different. And it created a kind of situation where all of a sudden people were exposed to uh, the domestic politics of all of these different countries. You had all of these people coming online, all of these different voices. And it was occurring at a speed that politicians just couldn't keep up with or legislate for. Um, so I guess one of the best examples of that would be there was a, a film in 2012 called The Innocence of Muslims, um, which was made um, by a kind of rogue um, guy. Uh, but what happened was when he did a screening, it caused 50 deaths, um, protests across a number of countries, um, they actually had to shut down the internet and quite a few, uh, or shut down YouTube in quite a few places and hundreds of injuries. Um, so I became really interested in that. And I um, then went to, I guess, like a conference in Egypt on um, how social media was interacting with the Arab Spring and wrote on how that was influencing war in Syria. And it was around that time um, that I encountered the people from CSIS and what they were trying to do was something very, very different, um, which was create an interdisciplinary um, place for raising really big questions about the internet. So we wanted to have people that were experts um, in all aspects of the internet. And I got asked to come on board because I could bring a sort of social media perspective in terms of how people move and the sorts of ways that conflict plays, plays out. Okay, right. <laughs> um, so with, uh, I mean, it was something that I did at university, I did media studies. Um, so I know about the the, the CEN effect. I, I didn't realise that there was so much 
I, I suppose that when when people sort of think about media studies in, in, in the UK, I mean, I've had it labelled towards me that it was a bit of a cop-out degree uh, and things like that. But when you actually really listen to somebody like yourself who knows exactly what their specialism is within that, it makes perfect sense as to why we should be actually, you know, keeping up to date with what is going on and, and then how... Like you say, with the the, the internet and, and the, the pockets of, of people coming along, we're, we're sort of seeing that at the moment in, in, as part of Brexit. Um, in the news this week, there's been some protesters that have been haranguing members of parliament and journalists outside of the, the Palace of Westminster. And and that has all stemmed from these people sort of being on the internet and, and saying, come join me. And that's how they're sort of getting. They're small in, in numbers, but that's how it's actually, you know, coming around is essentially they're going on the internet, putting their view across and then like-minded people are, are, are joining them and then they're meeting up and actually going and protesting in person. And, I mean, that's not something that would have happened 30 years ago, 20 years ago. It's a pace of rapid change, so phenomenal. Um, and it's such a fundamental change to our power structures um, to the way that we engage in politics, to the way that we engage in the world, to the structure of the nation state. Um, you know, it's something that you look at, something like the Islamic State, for example, you know, a mass movement created across borders that um, I think media studies, you know, is a part of that question of uh, cybersecurity. It is a part of the big questions that we are asking about how the internet is impacting on our lives at the moment. And, and it can tell us, quite a lot, I think, about or give us frameworks for considering how this is changing geopolitics that really enhance the sort of insights that um, I guess some of the more technical experts um, on my board would be able to give. So um, I, I think it is a, a really sort of fundamental part of the question of when we're thinking about where we will be in 10 years' time, asking these sorts of big picture questions is very, very important. So what what sort of things does your role actually entail doing? Is it is it kind of sort of saying to other members uh, of the board at CSIS that you know this is what's going on in the world right now or and and then being able to sort of relate their studies into cybersecurity back to I, I suppose in a way what everyone is doing personally in the world that, that you're seeing through the internet. Have I got the right sort of gist there? Yes, so what we look at is um, how social media is um, impacting on questions of cybersecurity, but because we have an interdisciplinary board, which I think is something that very much distinguishes our think tank from other think tanks, um, because we have uh, brought you know, people widely in, we, we cross over our expertises. So, you know, for example, this year, um, I'll be working with David Swan, who you um, recently interviewed, uh, to look at a, a series on the economics of the internet and how that is impacting on geopolitics. So, you know, where things are produced, you know, what's happening with China and America, and what are the sorts of outcomes to that? So it, it, it really is, um, I guess I provide another layer to this question of, um, you know, where are we going with this, you know, massive technology that is permeating all of the parts of our existence, it's raising all of these questions 
about, you know, what privacy means, what it means to um, be in a country, um, what it means in terms of the separation between your personal and private boundaries. Um, And it's something that allows us to another lens through which to Uh, look at these big questions because I think even if you went back 10 or 20 years ago um, you know no one would have predicted where we were now it's like this constantly evolving horizon um, where in order for us to keep up we actually need you know we need to be magpies we need to draw across different disciplines and um, and kind of hash together what this thing is that we're dealing with because the sorts of decisions we make now are going to influence our world um, as it develops. Before we sort of move on into what you were working on last year, I I wanted to just ask you the very simple sounding question and yet what will probably provide the most complex answer in history is whether you think that the the rise of social media is a good thing or a negative thing for the world as a community I think it's both I mean um you know I think part of the reason why I became so fascinated with it um is that you know, you look at conflicts and you have never had the opportunity, you know, before in history to see what things were like from the inside of a conflict. So you could see how a government wanted to represent it, how a news source wanted to represent it. Um, You know, and that's what we saw in the Arab Spring is that you had, you know, people getting online and showing their voices. You even had, you know, like Andrew Harding, who was a correspondent uh, for the BBC uh, for Africa for quite a while. Um, You know, as they started to uptake mobile phones, you had all these Africans getting on and talking back on the on the blogs that he was making about their societies. So it allows for this incredible kind of cultural exchange that I think in terms of uh, the way that we resolve conflicts, um, you know, has the potential to lead to greater understanding, greater diplomacy. At the same time, one of the things that we have seen is that it actually splinters people as well, that the same things that we experience in our everyday lives where we tend to, uh, you know, hang around people that have the same opinions. Uh, we tend to seek out people that reinforce our own cognitive biases. We see exactly the same thing on the internet, and that gets propelled by algorithms as well. So we end up in these tiny little silos. So it's kind of both. And then at the same time, on top of that, it's also like this crazy wild west where all of a sudden everything is open, um, you know, Anything can be accessed by anyone if they if they know how to use technology. Um, you know, your life is is much more open to anyone in the world than it ever has been at any point in history. Um, so I think it, it's good and it's bad, really. It's got both elements, but it's something that we need to we need to look at quite seriously. I, I mean, w- one of the things that I find uh, living in the UK w- with the fact that we're going through um, Brexit and, and the repercussions of the referendum at the moment, if I scroll through my Twitter feed, then I will see a lot of people who are talking about the referendum and the result either from one side or the other. Um, so leave or remain. And it doesn't matter which way I voted, but I do see a lot more of um, one side than the other. 
coming through my my Twitter feed. It's not even necessarily the the, the side that I actually and the way that I actually voted, but I do see an, a, an awful lot of one side and not so much of the other. Now, whether that's me actually interpreting what I'm seeing as being um, you know, on that one side of the argument, um, or whether it is the algorithm that is, you know, basically I've I've probably seen or liked or or retweeted one particular tweet in the past, and and Twitter has taken that and gone, that's what you want to see more of. I'm going to throw that into your timeline constantly. Um, I, I I don't really know exactly how it works to be able to, but I do look at it and go. You know, I, I can watch the news and I can get the opinions on on the members of parliament, and obviously then I can read opinion pieces uh, on online newspapers from journalists who have their say. But I can also see what my next door neighbour thinks about the whole thing, or even what um, somebody in the next city thinks. And, and I think that's a really, really good thing, and and, and able to you know, actually gauge public opinion a a bit easier. But at the same time, because we're human, it it almost feels like a a rational civil conversation can't happen on that forum. Um, And it will always just degenerate into, you know, a, a bit of a fight, if you like, a war of words, rather than it being, well, this is my point, this is my point, okay, we don't agree, let's just agree to disagree. It doesn't happen like that. And I don't know whether that's a human nature thing or whether it is the internet that's caused us to be like that, sort of hiding behind a keyboard sort of thing. I think there's like a number of complex points that you brought up there. Um, You know, in terms of algorithms, it's also on popularity. So uh, one of the things that has come out in the studies of Brexit is that, uh, you know, for example, there was one study that found Russian accounts posted by bots posted almost 45,000 messages pertaining to the referendum in the 48 hours around the vote. So, you know, there are ways of swinging that. We're entering into a kind of complex new world. Uh, Second of all, you've got, um, I guess, the way that different platforms or different kinds of social media encourage us to behave. Um, uh, When I, um, you know, one of the other reasons why I became very interested in digital culture was that um, I used to write um, for one of the top blogs in New Zealand uh, when blogging was just really beginning and really kind of uh, hitting New Zealand around kind of 2006, I think. And the, the internet evolved quite rapidly, I guess, from that stage. I mean, uh, blogging used to be quite ruthless then, but you would get really kind of quite considered answers. Now it's a lot more kind of uh, spam and so on. So I guess we kind of evolve with these platforms. Um, and, you know, there's so many different factors that are kind of influencing the way that we think about things. One thing I will say about Twitter is that we have to remember that not everybody is on Twitter. I think Twitter is a really interesting phenomenon because, you know, with, say, things like the the Green Revolution, Uh, in Iran, which of course wasn't a revolution, but um, was a whole pile of young people protesting on Twitter. You know, you had a country where a huge internet divide, like only a small proportion of people on the internet, but because they're using something like Twitter that all the journalists use and all the politicians use, that has a disproportionate influence on news stories. Um, So I think there's sort of different things in those platforms in terms of, you know, creating a kind of groundswell or an echo chamber uh, for things that can be heard. And 
um, you know, in New Zealand at the moment, quite often when a story emerges now, we have this thing where journalists go straight to Facebook or Twitter and get comments from people, and that gets seen as kind of representative of the public voice. Um, so, you know, if you have access to a computer, which of course, you know, a lot of the world doesn't, it's only around half of the world's population that is currently online, um, you know, it, it is elevating particular voices over others and it's a complex complex equation but it's an interesting one that has got really good aspects to it as well as really bad and um it's it's something i think you could study forever i think that's actually a really good point and and i i think i'm guilty of of forgetting that um when when i'm sort of either either reading the news or or just going through social media and and, and seeing what other people are thinking and and then sort of going oh this is what the world thinks <laughs> Well, it's only a small proportion of the world that thinks that, and I think that's a good thing that we should probably remember. You were last year a keynote speaker at the Smart City Summit in Yinchuan, China. Um, your presentation on the impact of cybersecurity on the global uptake of a holistic approach to city planning, it asked the question of whether it is too optimistic that the transition to the Internet of Things and smart cities will go some way to resolve global crises such as climate change. Uh, what is your opinion on that? What, what, sort of, what did you sort of bring to the table for, for that uh, keynote speech? So first of all, I would have to say that I love big thinkers that take on big challenges. Um, I think we need those um, people that, um, you know, I guess like Elon Musk and Tesla that stands up and goes, hey, I'm going to do this. Um, but one of the things I wanted to challenge um, was because I think when we think about smart cities, um, which of course is, um, you know, cities uh, that incorporate technology to, you know, run resources more efficiently, you know, create environmental gains and so on, um, that one of the things that we tend to think about is just about technology. So we come in with this perspective that if we just slap technology over the top of the city, then we're going to be able to solve all of these problems. So there's been some studies done looking at, you know, the tops, you know, there's always lots of different rankings of smart cities, um, but there are actually very few that take a really holistic approach. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to challenge, because when you're building a smart city, um, and this is one of the points that an architect made at the Yinchuan Smart Cities Summit, is that if you've got a laptop, that's a device that's designed to be used for three years and then be thrown away. If you're building a smart city building, that building might be there for the next hundred years. So you need to think really carefully about the kind of infrastructure that you lay out. Um, so my challenge was, is that we need to step back and think about what makes a city when we develop smart cities. And that is what gives the city its heart, its lived sense of feelings, um, that the residents experience, you know, what is it that makes London, London? What is it that makes Wellington, Wellington? Um, what is it that makes tourists want to travel there? What is it that generates foreign direct investment? And that's just not, you know, taking a piecemeal approach to developing different parts of the city infrastructure, adding on different bits of technology. It's stepping back and, and thinking about, you know, how we can use smart cities to develop character. And um, so one of the, the things that I was arguing is that some of the, the cities that have been the most successful are the ones that integrate low technology and high technology to do that. So somewhere like Barcelona or Medellin, which is, uh, you know, in Colombia, which is a very kind of low-tech example of a smart city, but it's one where they stepped back and they looked at the character and they said, you know, what is it that makes the city 
the city. You know, how can we take one of the cities with the highest crime rates um, in Colombia and transform it into a place that people want to be? So they did things that, like, they put in elevators. You know, these are kind of crazy ideas that you wouldn't usually think about when you think about a smart city and you think about better resource management um, because people didn't like climbing the the, the, the steep hills. They thought about how we can, you know, integrate social enterprise elements into the smart city and allow citizens to help it shape its unique character. And what happened was that they grew tourism and they dropped crime rapidly. So I think um, one of the things that we really need to do when we're talking about smart cities is step back and think about what it is that makes a city a city. Because there are a few smart cities around the world where they've built technology first that are kind of like ghost towns, you know, where they've gone out to, to set out to build a smart city, um, but people haven't necessarily moved there. So um, I think, you know, getting a chief technology officer um, and, you know, creating a kind of integrated approach, which is something that I guess um, in terms of the way that governments and cities are run is, is not something that, you know, is necessarily within the existing structure. There's a tendency to delegate to different departments and go, hey, you know, you can work on the public transport, you know, you can... Um, you can work on making our resource management more efficient rather than thinking about an actual strategy that builds a city. And I think that is going to be one of the things that differentiates um, which cities are the most successful smart cities in the future. When I think of a smart city, I have this very futuristic sort of bubble appear in my head where where we're no longer in cars, we're in um, automated vehicles that, that aren't on a road, they're, they're flying around the sort of tops of skyscrapers and it's very much sort of, I don't know, I think it, I think it was the Jetsons cartoon from, from when I was a child that, that was very much set in the future and everything was, we were almost living in the clouds. And yet, in reality, a smart city is literally just using the technology that, that we have available just to try and make everything run smoother as we already are. So uh, for, for me, the most obvious um, sort of piece of smart tech that's in use in the town that I live in controls the traffic lights for the roundabouts and, and for the, 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 you know, the road infrastructure around the town. Something that is actually incredibly simple to think of, but, at the same time has improved um uh, you know the 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 system um for getting in and out of town by uh, by road it, it's simple things like that that are actually happening at the moment in the world and and i think there is uh, like you say there's there's almost a, a rush or a, a want to rush to just get technology into absolutely everything because it will make it better even though there's not necessarily a well thought out approach to doing that and whether it will actually work and whether it will draw people into the city in the first place, like you say. Well, I think Barcelona is a great example, um, you know, where they introduced smart blocks, which were not about technology, but they were about shutting out cars. So they they were blocks of nine by nine block grids of uh, buildings where they just made them car free. Um, but they also got people's involvement in the use of their data in an open data project. Um, so a really good smart city is not just about these tiny bits of technology. It's about asking, what is it that is going to create a successful city in the future? 
future? What is it that is going to give us a competitive world edge? Um, you know, so if you look at London, for example, you know, same sort of uh, emphasis on people. You've just got, um, you know, your Smarter London Together strategy uh, where you've got user design spaces. You've got, you know, what do we do with this data? How do we allow citizens to interact with it? You know, how is it that our businesses could also draw from the data um, that they're using? These discussions around, you know, who gets access to what data, um, discussions around creating a kind of more um, connective space. So, you know, you have to have. Uh, your digital infrastructure to support this kind of technology rollout. Um, but it's also about creating a place um, that supports innovation and digital leadership. Um, because at the same time as we are growing into this kind of, um, I guess, brave new world of data, uh, one of the things that we are seeing is that our education system can't quite keep up with it, you know, with what we need to have. Um, so there's, you know, a worldwide shortage of cybersecurity professionals. There's lots of studies that have been done that say, you know, a lot of people don't feel that those cybersecurity professionals ne necessarily have the sorts of skills that they, they need to have. And at the same time, we've got, you know, um, this you know, rapidly developing realm of criminal activity, uh, malicious state activity, um, and, you know, just random people stalking other people and so on, that we need to keep up with um, these developments. And to do that, we actually need to work collaboratively together. So I think, yes, a smart city can actually help us um, solve environmental problems. But one of the things I wanted to question was, do we need to step back and think about what it, what it is that a city is? You know, what makes it people want to participate in a smart city? Because that's a really big question, because you can put all this technology there, but if you have citizens that don't want to engage with that technology or don't see any reason to, then you're going to have trouble upskilling people in cybersecurity. You're going to have trouble getting that city running as it should be. Yes, yeah. Um, we I spoke to uh, the the founder of CSIS, Richard Zalewski, and and we ended up going on a, a quite a big tangent that that basically led us all the way back to Star Trek. Something that keeps popping up every time I interview anyone for this podcast. Um, and we were talking about how technology has has moved on, and there's you know technology that we see today and just sort of think, oh yeah, that's an iPad or that's a a mobile phone, whatever that was kind of first seen back in science fiction in the 1960s. One of the other things that, that Star Trek and, and the franchise around Star Trek actually sort of had as part of its canon was that Earth was no longer run in terms of by greed or wealth and, and the need to actually own things. And everyone was working together to just improve themselves in, in, in a, a utopian fantasy world, essentially. But do you think that that might be possible in the future? What we're doing now and putting in place with things like smart cities, do you think that might lead one day to that world becoming a reality? would be wonderful wouldn't it <laughs> but no I, th I think it's a very techno utopian idea and you know we need some people that are you know very much uh flying the flag because this is how we get development this is how you know we spur spur people on um but this idea of you know there being no need to work is actually something that's quite common today. You only need to look at some of the top tech entrepreneurs, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. And there's this idea that, you know, we will need a universal basic income because automation will replace 
many of the tasks that we have today. Um, and automation is beginning to replace many of the tasks that we have today. And that's something that businesses, um, governments, need to adjust to because it's occurring at a rate that we don't really realise. I think it's, you know, one of those things um, that, you know, you, you look back when I was growing up, you know, I remember my dad getting me to have MS-DOS lessons, um, you know, like, but to think about that now in terms of the technology we have, it's almost crazy, you know, the amount, <laughs> you know, you try, try and talk about, you know, to, um, you know, a millennial about MS-DOS, and they're like, what are you talking about? Um, it's just a totally different world uh, where technology is so much integrated into our lives. But I think that um, the idea that, you know, we'll just sort of er- eradicate inequality is probably you know, maybe, you know, maybe I'm being pessimistic. I think it's a little bit far-fetched, you know. Um, I think, you know, well, the World Economic Forum has asked governments to start thinking about, you know, the fact that around 7.1 million jobs will be lost by 2020 due to automation. You know, most of those are going to be the more manual jobs. So it means that governments do need to look at the way that they're educating their kids and the exposure that they're giving them to technology and the way that they can encourage them towards jobs that involve more of strategic uh, rather than a kind of manual emphasis. But 7.1 million people is really a drop in the bucket when you look at a a world population of 7.7 billion and an existing economic order that has vast inequalities in terms of access to capital and technology. So, you know, I think that there's a real chance that rather than the world moving towards equality, that technology will work to exacerbate those divides and that we end up with parts of the world that are highly developed, technology focused and have economies that are based around service industries, you know, in the same way that we've seen, I guess, in the West we've, um, you know, uh, there was that idea of the knowledge economy that was very sort of fashionable, you know, about a decade ago, that we would all be in kind of service industries and would be ideas people. Um, but we've still got parts of the world that are really focused on the production of cheap goods. Um, so I think it's quite possible that we'll probably have the kind of setup that we have now. It might be that uh, those inequalities uh, may be smoothed over within some societies. But at the same time, and when we've seen things that we just really didn't expect, you know, um, I think of, for example, um, you know, there used to be that idea that there were particular stages of infrastructure through which nations would develop. So there was the idea that, you know, uh, you would get your kind of power lines, your, your telecommunications, all of that sort of stuff, and then you would move towards technology. But you look at cheap mobile phones in Africa, for example. You know, I remember going to Nigeria you know, seeing really poor people on less than a dollar a day with these like secondhand cell phones from the UK, and uh, they've just they've just completely leapfrogged. You know, <laughs> so now we, you know, if you look at, for example, Nigerian scammers, like a lot of those people are really poor people existing in places that don't even really have proper infrastructure yet. They're they're able to you know engage with the technology and the internet in ways that we wouldn't sort of expect. So I, I think there's still going to be, you know, many surprises in, in terms of the way that things develop. And, you know, I'd be absolutely foolish given the conversation we've just had to say it will be kind of exactly like it is now in 20 years' time. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that uh, I, I sort of, I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is a, a big Star Trek nerd, and I was just trying to ask him, what what would you call that world that, that Star Trek port? portrays and 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 my friend came back and went well essentially it's socialism that is exactly what 
that that is just portraying there is is just a particular brand of of life that at the moment especially in the world that we're living in today where we've got it, it seems or at least it feels like the the media are portraying the 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 far right are actually coming more into the picture uh, into the political landscape and you've got more conservative views coming through with the likes of the fact that we've got um, the Republicans and Donald Trump in America in power at the moment, the Conservative Party in the UK. Um, and and the fact that then those particular election results came through with, with Brexit and with the US elections, that it's just not something that's ever going to be possible in, in the next while. And I mean, the one thing that I did have to remind myself was that st- that point of time star trek is set 400 years in the future from where we are now and so therefore there's a long way to go before we would ever even begin to reach that sort of stage i think well i, th- I think there's a, a couple of things there too you know and that is first of all that you know we do in terms of who uses the internet who uses social media whose voices get heard you know it tends to be you know uh you know, people that are middle class, not people that are really poor, you know. Um, and I, I think, you know, certainly in the case, you know, of the US election and Brexit, we did see, you know, a kind of bite back from groups that had been kind of ignored or felt economically marginalised. Um, second of all, I think that the more that you have contact with other people, and this just seems to be the way that world history has gone, is that the more that nations contact other nations, the more you have rises of different groups that kind of uh, jostle for power. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. And those ideas about, you know, a kind of uh, cashless society where we work on ourselves are really influential. I mean, uh, one theorist I talked about at Yinchuan is um, Jeremy Rifkin, who wrote a book called The Zero Marginal Cost Society um, that was actually really influential on Germany and China. And he he, he argued basically that... Um, you know, that that these trends in automation, um, Internet of Things, smart cities, um, that we would, you know, kind of use these global problems like climate change uh, to create a kind of um, that sort of society, a collaborative commons where we work on ourselves. And he looked at, you know, the example of how kind of music and uh, books, you know, uh, with the the internet, it really kind of almost bottomed out the music industry and everything became sort of available for free. And, you know, his sort of fundamental question is why not other industries doing that? You know, why is this something that's just confined to um, music and books? Is this something that, you know, with the development of these technologies, we're going to see a kind of um, domino effect across other industries? I I think, you know, it's possible to some extent, but I think it's still optimistic as far as I'm concerned. Time for a short break, but when we return, we'll hear Phoebe's thoughts on what the future has in store. Content marketing is, it's our obsession. Consumers are always being bombarded with content. So white papers, mostly they are used, I guess, to persuade people. When you're refreshing content, really you're updating it. Go through your notifications every day and respond to people that are connecting with you. We've seen a real fundamental shift in the dynamics of marketing over the last 10 to 15 years. Tech Demand Weekly, the weekly podcast for marketing professionals. Now they know that I'm not just playing the sport for fun, I'm watching the scoreboard. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to People of Tech and my conversation with Dr. Phoebe Fletcher. Before the break, Phoebe was talking about smart cities and the positives that they provide. Next up, I asked Phoebe whether the fear of cyber attacks, such as the WannaCry ransomware attack on the NHS in 2017, could create a barrier to smart cities and their uptake. I think in terms of not working because of the fear, I think that we've just already passed that precipice, you know, um, that even though a, a lot of uh, cities or governments aren't necessarily thinking about smart cities as a coordinated strategy, and that's only something that's just beginning to kind of come in, um, that if you look at governments, for example, the amount that they're, you know, of the information that they're beginning to store in the cloud, you know, the sorts of devices that people have in their houses, you know, that we have smart fridges, smart everything, um, we, we are kind of in smart cities already. So um, I don't think, that, you know, I think that there will be more cyber attacks um, and we really need to uh, be very aware of that uh, because I think we're going to see a significant rise in, you know, uh, basically malicious state attacks on each other because if you go and invade a country you know it's very sort of obvious uh whereas if you attack people through the internet um it can be very difficult to trace who's just done that um so it's um you know it's something that we're going to see a lot more of and you know it's not just one one a cry which of course is something that you know, it went outside of the UK and it really put people's health at risk as well because it had massive implications for the National Health Service. But you've seen, for example, DDoS attacks on transportation systems in Sweden. Um, and you've seen um, SamSam last year as well, where a hacker group that they used ransomware to infect the city of Atlanta's system to demand Bitcoin. So, you know, you've got cyber criminals in the mix as well as nation state actors. And it's, it's something that is definitely going to rise. I think um, smart cities, you know, it's, it's one of the things that is going to cause people anxiety. Um, but probably, you know, just as much how their data is used, I think, is another kind of uh, question that people have, um, you know, when they when they think about the integration of these technologies. Um, so we just have to prepare. And, you know, the problem with Internet of Things is that there's so many different devices. You've got new systems with legacy systems. And there's so many different points that are exposed. So we really need to uh, encourage better training and um, I guess better knowledge by decision makers and bureaucrats of cybersecurity um, because we are still, I think, at a, a kind of juncture in society where, um, you know, we have these cyber specialists and, and then we have decision makers that don't necessarily understand the ramifications and those two different groups really need to talk to each other. What are the biggest challenges that you're seeing um, for 2019? You you run a, a program at the Strategic so Cyberspace and Security Science Centre that um, it, it's looking at the emerging challenges social media presents for geopolitics and, and domestic security. Is there something that stands out for you at the moment that, that is going to be a challenge in the next year or beyond? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think we'll continue to see is the growth of information warfare through social media. Um, and, you know, if we talk about social media and information warfare, I mean, information warfare is, you know, it's old. It's something that's been going on forever. You could talk about, for example, the U.S. use of planes over Cuba uh, in the 1990s. You could talk about, like, the Syrian Electronic Army and, you know, the way that they were hacking Amnesty International in 2012. You could even talk about, like, Russian television and the way that they used U.S. dissidents to kind of create a voice and then, um, 
reflect that through YouTube. Um, but one of the things that we're beginning to see, and I think we saw this with the Senate Intelligence Committee in the United States last year, was kind of a, a bit more of an emphasis on how these, um, you know, these big tech platforms like Facebook and Twitter that had previously been seen as kind of neutral um, might be used for influence. So I think, you know, in 2016, there was a lot of questions around, you know, Brexit and the US election in terms of, you know, how social media was being used to influence people. And we've seen a a shift towards, I guess, you know, uh, a change in the way that this is done. So, you know, in in terms of of the way you might influence a sort of domestic population, you know, you can have two things. You can have your sock puppets, which is actually somebody that's just sitting there and, you know, kind of spewing comment opinions, and then you can have your bots. Now, the thing that um, I think we're going to see in 2019 is that there's a lot of advances in artificial intelligence, and that means that the use of botnets is going to become much more sophisticated. Um, and, you know, it, I think it's very difficult for uh, governments and for also for platforms to necessarily, um, you know, pick out what is a bot and what is a person, um, because in the past you just wouldn't have that kind of exposure um of what the internal domestic views of a population were. Now you can kind of, you know, you can access from anywhere the comment section and see what people are talking about. So it's it's very easy to, I guess, kind get kind of existing views. And if you have a political agenda, throw that behind particular candidates or particular ideas or or particular, I guess, kind of dog whistle politics. Um, you know, we look for people that are swing voters or are likely to move, and you know, emphasize that through astroturfing. You know, where you you make it look like there's you know a huge group of people that have the same idea. And I think that's going to get much more sophisticated um, and, you know, as, as artificial intelligence develops and that these are going to become sort of more realistic, um, you know, because you can see see this. And um, I think this is why when they did like a sweep of Facebook and Twitter uh, for the Senate Intelligence Committee, they only really found a few hundred accounts. And, you know, these were, were mainly Iran-backed. Um, and, and that's because it is quite easy today to get something that sounds quite close to being authentic. And of course, you know, if you're looking at just Facebook and Twitter, that doesn't even include the people that are shaping the comments on news sites. How do you switch off from work? I just uh, basically reconnect with my friends and just make sure that I get time to relax and go out into nature. I live in a, a very beautiful country with not too many people, as you know. <laughs> and so we have a lot of beaches and, you know, um, wild, windy places that you can kind of get out to and get amongst nature. And I think that's like quite a good antidote sometimes to um, being engaged in those kind of politics on the internet or debate or reading that cacophony of opinions that you can get uh, exposed to is to to switch off by tuning out. (laughs) My thanks to Dr Phoebe Fletcher. That's it for People of Tech this week, but I'll be back next Monday, so be sure to tune in then.